Welcome to Try Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers in the country. The recipe is simple. We have the best trial lawyers tell the best stories of cases that had a profound impact on them. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get started. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Talking. I'm so happy to be talking with Cliff Atkinson. I've had Cliff's book, and I should say books because I've got, I'm now on the fourth edition um, of Cliff's phenomenal book, Beyond Bullet Points. And it has been such a, a wealth of knowledge and wisdom that I'm super, super happy to have Cliff with us here today to share his wisdom and knowledge with you. Cliff is a leading expert in visual storytelling in trial. And he started out, his first case was with Mark Lanier that became uh, a, a humongous verdict and really was a game changer for a lot of lawyers around the country in how to approach opening statements and and how to visually tell stories. And since working with Mark Lanier, Cliff has been working with hundreds of lawyers throughout the country. And and really, Cliff, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to to be with you and to share with your audience some of our uh, exploration of story and storytelling and trial. Wonderful. Well, let's let's get going. Um, Tell us, what is a story? That is just a, a, phenomenal, a phenomenal question. I mean, so simple yet very profound at the same time. And I, and I think I would probably start the conversation here that story is has become a big thing. And I think probably in our culture, culture at large, we are just in a time of just such an expansion of knowledge and facts and information. And I think with all the proliferation of knowledge, we're wanting some way to to make sense of it. And that's what I would say is a story. A story is a way to to make sense out of information, often disconnected information, seeing patterns, seeing structures, seeing something that that has some sort of underlying deeper meaning that we connect can connect with. And so, you know, there's so much today in the business world about story, storytelling, how businesses tell story, about brands, how brands tell story. And it's so wonderful that, you know, as, as I've been working with with attorneys in the last 16 years, that story uh, has always been and continues to be a really central theme, a topic, a tool that that people are wanting to, to learn and to learn more about. Because I think it's just something that that humanity has always used to communicate and make sense out of things. And I think that Today, more than ever, it's really an important topic for us to explore. Lawyers get a case and they've got a set of facts and thousands of documents often and witnesses that are you know, saying different things. How do you approach 
developing a story out of all of the you know disjointed facts and legal elements and all of the issues and information that we have uh, uh, floating around in the case. You know, there's Scott, there's some really interesting um, uh, uh, lots of different angles on this. I think one of the most intriguing to me is I don't know if you remember back in the '70s there was this whole thing about. When they first started doing brain research, there was a, a, a whole thing about left brain, right brain. Left brain was supposed to be analytical. Right brain was supposed to be creative. And those those became kind of like ensconced into popular culture and our understanding of the brain. But those were just the initial, uh, the initial findings or understandings of what the brain has done in those hemispheres. We definitely have two hemispheres. And since then, there's there, you know, the research has continued and the latest understanding we have about these hemispheres uh, is that the the right brain, I'm sorry, the left brain is about all the details. It's about, you know, dissecting, about, you know, cutting things into pieces. And we could relate this to the evidence. I mean, it's about the facts. It's about these individual pieces and the detail. And what we know about the right brain now is it's actually more about this big picture rather than the detail. It's about having this, this, you know, this understanding of the whole thing and being able to connect all those dots. So, so there's one angle where you can look at this, where, you know, you could say that the field of the law is really about, it's about the law, about these, uh, the, the, the written law, about the, the concepts, about many abstractions and about these specific details and the pieces of evidence. And really when we start to talk about story and the, transformation of that information into story. We're really now moving into this hemisphere about finding that big picture, about being able to tell this in a captivating, engaging way that and making an emotional connection. So I think it's it's really important because I think that, you know, obviously in law school, nobody is teaching any of these uh, methods or techniques or skills of, of, of transforming the 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 small pieces into a coherent whole into telling a story. So I think that you know if we start to look at it that way, that this is actually helping to stretch our capacity of our brains and our communication to now take this core set of information and now make it more compelling and interesting and connected in those dots. It's really almost a personal development exercise for us because we're getting better at being able to connect the dots and see the big picture. So it's it's a big question, you know. How do you take all that detail and turn it into a story? And and we'll look at that. I, I think that's going to be a core theme of what we talk about today, uh, it, it, on how you practically do that. But I do have to say, you know, if, if there were a couple of basic criteria that I would I, that I work with my lawyer clients often, it's about distilling. You know, a big question I might ask when I'm I'm working with a client in one of our uh, full day sessions, yeah, I, I might start out looking for what are the three most important things you want the jurors to remember after they've heard your opening statement. So that single question, it's like, oh, wait, wait a minute, you know, I've got six million documents. Like, what do you mean three? That 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 question in itself helps to now shift and reshift and make you think about things in a different way. And that helps what I would say is one of the central techniques or tools or ways to work with this. It's about distillation. It's about taking the 6 million documents and now distilling it down to the three most important things you want somebody to remember. So that's 
you know, all, all this is critical thinking work and it's the really hard work that we have to do up front because I think there's that, uh, that saying, I think it was at Mark Twain who said, I would have written you a, a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. The gist of it was something like that, that it actually is super, super hard work to be able to make something distilled and, and you know, boil it down to its essence. So that's really always the, the upfront and hardest work. You know, when I work with clients, it's probably 60% of that day that we spend together is a critical thinking process of distilling something to its essence and then laying out the chronological framework for what happened in that story. Okay. Well, let's assume we've got the answers to the three most important things that we want the jurors to remember about our case. What's the next step in this, in the approach to develop a persuasive story? Well, next it's about, it's about finding the chronology, you know, telling the story from beginning to middle and end. And that then becomes, you know, the the backbone for the information. Let's say you've got 45 minutes for an opening statement. You've got a beginning, the very first few moments and minutes to capture, you know, the jurors, your audience's attention to be able to frame what you're going to talk about, to make them feel connected to, to, you know, make it easy for them to understand. And then you've got the chronology of events. And so ideally, as you are working and shaping your ideas and your evidence in this sort of structure from the beginning, middle and end, these classical elements of story, you know, need to be there. You've got to have a main character. So I most often work with plaintiff's attorneys. So there's got to be a bad guy and the bad guy is the defendant. And so, I, you know, as I work with clients to tell the story about the, the bad guy, then every statement that we write, everything that we write is, you know, has got as the subject of that is the bad guy, the name of the defendant. And then the defendant, you know, is a big company that's hungry for profit and it is under pressure to deliver. And so it cuts corners and then they hurt somebody. Something like that could be, you know, an essential structure for a story, but you're, you've got to figure out and map your facts to some sort of sensible chronological structure laying out what happened from beginning to middle and end. Where was that point that they knew the rules and they decided to break them so that they could make more money? How did they hurt this person? What did they take from them? You know, so so these are the those crucial elements of, you know, the having a plot, who the main character is, the bad guy in this case, uh, what they did what happened over the course of time, how they tried to cover up. You're looking for telling the story in a chronological sequence. And that really is that imprint of the story structure, you know, in order for people to understand and to connect with the story, it's got to have this story structure. And so, and it's got to be recognizable. And that's a core thing that I've been realizing lately is that, you know, when you, when you, when you um, read a lot of these, books about uh, screenwriting in Hollywood, they talk about genre. And what they mean like that is, you know, by a genre is a type of story. Is it a murder mystery? Is it a comedy? Is it a sci-fi? What's the genre? But part of the reason for having genres is that these are types of stories that people recognize. And then your jurors or anybody you talk to needs to be able to recognize the type of story that you're about to tell. You know, so you're, you're not making, you're not pulling all this stuff out of nowhere how you craft and structure the story has to have 
you know, a pre-existing framework. It has to have some sort of familiar structure that the folks you're talking to can actually understand and follow along with. And in cases where lawyers are going up against large corporations that are greedy, for example, what genre would you describe that as? Well, so I, I would always say, I would say that, you know, some of the, the interesting things about, uh, you know, especially like I mentioned, I normally work with plaintiffs, attorneys, civil cases. So, so that type of story that you're telling is actually technically a, a, a tragedy. And a tragedy is about a character who, you know, might set out doing something with the best of intentions, but then at some critical point, they make a decision that's actually a bad decision, and then they end up hurting somebody. And so I would say that, you know, tragedy is the underlying story structure. And so with that, you know, one of the interesting things about that is like, you know, this, this character went, they, they, you know, consciously knew the right things. They made this crucial decision to do the wrong thing. And now you and the jury, so this is the implicit context for this story, that you're actually the one that can do something about this. You know, you can prevent them from continuing to harm people in a similar way. You know, you can hold them uh, accountable for what they did. And so with with a sort of tragedy structure, it's so important. And this is the discernment, I think, you know, with, with Hollywood movies, with fictional movies, you know, the, the story is almost a complete package. You know, you're, it's all like a, you know, some of them are maybe even a morality tale. You watch the story from beginning, middle and end and you see what happens. And at the end you clap or you, or you don't clap or you just, you know, you, you've had some sort of emotional impact and then you move on with your life, but you don't actually do anything at the end. But, you know, the, the, one of the core distinctions with the story uh, to a jury is that they actually, you know, and one of the big opportunities is to make the jurors really feel the truth of the situation is that they are actually participants in the story. So with a, a tragedy story structure, you know, at the, at the end of it, the jurors actually have, you know, through, through their completion and the creation of an ending to the story, they can bring this to justice. They can hold the bad guy accountable. And so, you know, this, this is so important that it's actually more interesting, I would say, than Hollywood movies, because you do get to immerse them, have the opportunity to immerse them and, and let them feel that they are the main characters of the story. So although there's the bad guy on the loose, they can be the good guys themselves and they can bring the situation to justice for them, you know, for their community. So, so the, the jurors are actually the heroes, as, as written about by my friend Carl Bettinger. That's right. So the, the, the jurors, you want to make the jurors the heroes for sure. And, you know, and that is so important because, in so, you know, you really have to make the jurors care about this. You know, they have to be able to, first of all, you know, you, you're one of the hard things you have to do, especially in, in a like some of the most difficult cases are patent cases, but you've got to take that to the core facts of the information, the evidence and, and frame it in a way that's relatable to the jurors. So in that patent example, maybe this is about stealing, taking something that doesn't belong to you, but you've got to frame it in a way that makes it relatable, that the jurors can actually, you know, see this happening in their everyday lives. They can understand it. And then, then they have the ability to be able to do something meaningful, right? So you've got to, you know, connect it 
emotionally with the folks you're talking to. They've got to care. And if they don't care and if they don't feel an emotion about this, then you've really lost them. So the opportunity is to frame the information and the story in a way that makes them care, makes them involved, makes them feel like they are, like you just said, the hero of the story. And when they're the hero, then you can't really get more involved and connected than that. How do we do that? In other words, how do we get the jurors to care, to feel that they're a participant in the story and to, to really you know, want to be moved to be connected and emotionally connected and to, to ultimately take action? And without violating the golden rule, right? Without, you know, making, you know, being explicit about that, you know, tell, saying you and speaking directly to them. So I would say like, I, you know, my story to share on that was actually this very first case I had, I worked on. So a little bit of my backstory. So my background is uh, English journalism. Uh, I did work, I was in the military, did work that's pretty similar to corporate communications. And then I figured out, you know, after PowerPoint came out that you could actually tell a story, get to the point and and also make it visual at the same time. So I figured out PowerPoint and began writing these articles about how you can, you know, you don't have to put text on the screen. It could be visual. It could be like a film. And then Microsoft invited me to write a book about it. And I wrote Beyond Bullet Points that came out in 2005 and it was written for a business audience. And uh, Mark Lanier is working on his first Vioxx case. He read my book and invited me to to come out to help him with that case. And I had said, you know, I've never worked with lawyers. I've never been in a courtroom. I don't even know how to do this. And he said, no, I, I in your book, I see what I would like to do in this case. I want to distill this. I want to make an impact on the jury. I want to make it visual. I want to use PowerPoint to do this. So I flew out worked with him and then created this, you know, to create this, this opening statement that he delivered. And I described that in chapter one of the Beyond Bullet Points book. And in that, so the gist of his opening that he gave, so this is the very first Spyox trial, and it was um, Carol Ernst was the plaintiff, and she was suing a pharmaceutical company um, for prescribing Vioxx to her husband, who then uh, took it, and it was a cause of his heart attack. So if you could picture this, uh, on the big 10-foot screen behind him was just a picture of uh, Bob and Carol out on a date. And then Mark just said, you know, well, let me tell you the story about Bob and Carol. They were both single late in their lives. I uh, hadn't expected to meet anybody at this point, but but Bob's uh, uh, Carol's daughter introduced her to Bob on a blind date, and they hit it off, and pretty pretty soon they fell in love. And they uh, got married and they were married together for 11 months. So then on the screen, there's this you know picture of the two of them on a date. And then suddenly the uh, picture of, uh, of Bob disappears. And then there's a chalk outline. And then Mark says, you know, he clicks. And then the next image is the CSI logo. And he says, you get to be like CSI detectives. You get to follow the evidence and figure out what killed Bob Ernst. So... With that very, you know, they're just very, very simple images at the beginning, but the story is set up in a way, you know, there's actually, it sounds very simple, but rhetorically and strategically and tactically below the surface is a lot happening. And one thing is that, you know, it's just introducing this story with uh, just the backdrop of a big picture of this couple. 
uh, suddenly the background disappears and there's a chalk outline, which is now rhetorically shifting the case from a product liability case to a different kind of case that has a chalk outline with a, you know, where a bo- around a body. And then, then now click going to the next slide with a CSI logo. Now you get to be like CSI detectives. So, so this has reframed this case, you know, now it's a more like a murder mystery, just like a CSI show, which is framing that the jurors already understand and get that. And now they get to be detectives. So that would be an example. You know, those are, this was just the very first minute, two minutes of this opening, but already um, that that's one practical example of how it is that you can, you know, draw a, a jury, your audience into the story and make them feel really involved. So that particular theming, which, by the way, came from um, jury questionnaires. You know, when we'd ask them, well, what, what's one of your favorite TV shows? Well, a lot of people put CSI. So we were just taking from, from those questionnaires and from the jury themselves a familiar framing. You know, this is a, a, a framing that's already in popular culture. The genre of a murder mystery, you know, already in a crime scene investigation is already imprinted, already exists. So that's, again, what I was referring to earlier, having some sort of framing and a genre that the audience already understands. And then now, by connecting those two, now the jury gets to be involved. They get to feel like they get to be the detective. So the rest of the opening, the rest of the trial, then they are empowered to be able to go forward and and look at all the evidence and, and hear both sides of the story. So that, that's just a practical practical example, but you know other other ways. You know, so that was a very front loaded in terms of you know we made it more explicit, uh, but but you know the, that that would be just you know one very practical way that you can you can do that. Yeah, what what a great great example. Can you think of any other examples uh, of of ways that you've integrated story to make the jurors feel? connected, involved, part of it. Yeah, so I'd say uh, uh, another, uh, recently on a trucking case. So uh, the technique here was to have a picture. So, and this was, you know, working with photographs that had already been entered as evidence. So this was a photograph of a very busy uh, road, like a highway that had big trucks going both ways. And so the the beginning of the story was just this picture and the intent behind it as, as the lawyer is beginning to tell the story is to bring the jurors into being on the road and driving. And all of us, you know, have had these big 18 wheelers just like passing by us at 70 miles an hour. You know, it just, there's this feeling of, of stress, you know, and, and of danger of having these big trucks around. And so with this as the backdrop, you know, it's about saying, you know, it could be, there are many ways to verbally you now to, to tell this story, but one might be, you know, the big picture, big trucks, you know, could, could be, you know, January, 2013, um, you know, Sue and, and Bob and their three kids were in their truck going to visit their grandmother for one of the kids' birthdays. They assume that, that, you know, Everybody on the road was driving safely. You know, we all count on the the you know the laws and for companies to be able to uh, follow the rules and be safe for everybody on the road. 
in a split second, the 18 wheeler you see on your left crossed the median, hit them head on and instantly killed the entire family. They never got to see the grandma. You know, so, so with that, you know, it's just implicitly kind of painting a picture, you know, having like all of us have been on these roads and seen this sort of, you know, seen the big trucks coming in the other direction. The, the idea behind it is just to be able to bring in the audience, make them feel like this is something that, you know, that they've experienced or that that could happen, you know, at any point. And so at the end of this story, you know, to, to loop it back around, you know, the, the, the company had, had cut a lot of corners and put unsafe drivers on the road. And by the end of it, you know, the, the, to, to, to loop it all around, you know, the jurors felt empowered that, that, you know, when they held this company accountable for what they did, the roads would then be safe, you know, for themselves, for others, for any, anybody else that's driving. So the general gestalt of it is to, 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 you know, tell a story, paint a picture that, that the, you know, jurors can relate to and then connecting the, all of those dots to the facts and the specifics of your case. Let's talk about visual storytelling. I know you are the expert in visual storytelling. Um, first, can you share with us what that means? Well, so let me put it this way. I, I would say that a story is a story. And and as I mentioned with this, you know, day-long consulting session I do, you know, 60% is just on the structure of the story, just on the words. How are we going to, what's the theme? How are we going to tell the story? What's the chronology? What's the evidence that's going to back up what we're saying before we get into the slides? So by the end of that, you know, half a day, 60% of the day, if the lawyer just stood up and told that story verbally without visuals, it would be a clear, concise, easy to understand, strong theme, big anchor points to grab onto with just words alone. You know, so the, so I would, at a fundamental level, I'd just say that a story has got to stand on its own with just words. And once you've got those words in place, you've got a solid theme, you've painted the word pictures, then when you add visuals to continue to, you know, to magnify that story, you now take things into the next stratum, the next dimension, because we live in such a visual culture today. You know, there's a reason why now all of us, you know, can pick up a phone and go through Instagram, look at pictures, you know, our eyesight is, uh, just such a predominant, such a, a huge way that we perceive information through visuals. So there's no, you know, there, there's so much research about how powerful visuals can be, but just at, at a, you know, looking at our phone, it's just, we've become such a visual uh, culture at such an accelerated rate that once you've got the, the, uh, the verbal structure in place, visuals are going to make it that much more powerful. So in that uh, Vioxx case that I mentioned, um, so Mark's team interviewed the jurors six months later, they still remembered the opening statement. They still remembered visuals and themes from the opening statement. So, so visuals are going to help 
make things sticky. Visuals can help communicate uh, information. You know, they say pictures worth a thousand words, meaning that it it can communicate instantly what many words would take a lot longer to do. So it can accelerate communication. Um, it can be used. Uh, visuals can be used not just in an explicit way saying, you know, here's a truck and then here's a picture of the truck, but it could be used in a way where you just put up a, a picture of a truck that's, you know, clearly barreling down recklessly at 90 miles an hour, you know, and that without even saying anything about the truck speeding, a picture can get across that this is a dangerous vehicle going down the road. So it can, not just communicate explicit information, but also can get across a lot more information than even what you might say verbally. So it's going to accelerate communication. It's going to make your ideas stickier. It's going to communicate information in in a, often a more efficient way than just words alone. But I would always say that there has got to be the verbal foundation and then the visuals are now going to take it to the next dimension. I know you have a great section in your book about using storyboards to develop the story, but how, what what would you say is the, the process from once you have your story to approaching and you know developing your 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 visual story? So if you've um, never worked in PowerPoint, there's a view in PowerPoint. You, at the ribbon at the top, it says view, and then you pick slide sorter. And then from this perspective, you know, usually you might, if you worked in PowerPoint, you might just work on a single slide. When you go to view slide sorter, you see all the slides together at once. So when you first open a brand new PowerPoint with nothing in it, you can take, uh, you know, and ideally this would just be a, a slide with a white background. You just duplicate that 40 times and look at slide sorter and you just see what looks like just 40 blank index cards, 40 blank screens, 40 blank frames of a movie. And that is, I would say, the number one place to start. When you look at a blank, so I call that a storyboard, but just 40 blank slides in a row, then you can look at the upper left corner and say, what's if as I have my story in place, what's the very first thing I'm going to show? and say, and then the lower right, you're going to say, what's the very last thing I'm going to show and say? And then what are the three most important things I'm going to show and say in between? So that by, by beginning to look at it from that big pic, the big visual picture, then you can start planning out from the first thing you show to the last thing you show and everything in between in in a visual way and you can start to plan is this going to be a document a photograph is this going to be just you know uh, a blank screen there at that point as you're looking at the big picture you can start to plan out the visuals beginning middle to end and how do you figure out what visuals to use well the bulk of the visuals you use are going to be the evidence that you've got so this will be an email then a zoom on a part of that email. This will be a, a still from a video deposition where you know somebody is speaking and then you do a pull quote over to the right. 
you know, no, we, you know, yes, we knew the safety rules, but we did not follow them as an example. Um, so you also, you know, so it's going to be documents, it's going to be videos, video clips, any uh, illustrations, 3D animations that are showing a brain injury, for example, you know, showing the impact, showing what happened to the brain, um, showing medical records, showing, uh, you know, uh, anything else, so family photos of before and after, what they look like before, what they look like after. So you know, the bulk of the visuals that you have should be, you know, probably 70% would be the actual evidence and showing the documents, emails, video clips, illustrations as well. In addition to that, if you do have some, you know, thematic elements, then you might, you know, use a very simple image to try to convey that. So for example, you know, it's a, a big theme in many of these cases about money that a company was pursuing money. And so, you know, some ways to illustrate that money might be, let's say they've got an annual report and their revenues that year were $3.6 billion. And so you do a zoom of the $3.6 billion. Um, you know, it could be that you just put, put the number, you know, dollar sign 3.6 and then billion that could, that just that text right there could be uh, operate as a graphic, or if you're able to use it, it could be a big stack, uh, you know, a big mound of hundred dollar bills, you know, sitting uh, on a slide, you know, if, if you would be able to do that, you know, with the judge you're working with in that jurisdiction, you know, that some folks can do that. Some folks cannot. So with that, you know, your, your, the bulk of your graphics and your visuals will be the evidence and zooming and, you know, and, uh, putting that sort of information as visuals. Uh, and then it might be a combination of, you know, creating some custom animations or illustrations. It could be some stock, you know, I would say limited stock photography, you know, problem comes up with stock photos and that everybody's using them or they become cheesy. So you're just wanting something to, you know, to, to be something the jurors find, you know, relevant and interesting. Uh, but other, Sources of visuals could be your own phone. You know, if you were able to go to the crash site or if you could do, go take a picture of a car or a truck or, you know, any damage that happened, you know, you're, you're um, wanting to, to use as much from the actual case, as much photographs, as, as much, you know, of the actual documents as you can, because that's going to be the core of your visual credibility. So you're wanting this to be the actual evidence. Um, and, and it's important, you know, that you're, that that's the bulk of it because there may be a tendency to, to just use clip art or just to do cute and, you know, funny things that I might've found this like cute clip art from the internet. Um, you know, having too much of that, then it, then it diminishes that visual credibility and there's not really the, the, you know, concrete backup for that. So you want it, as much visual evidence um, as you can to use. And I'm not saying that it has to be sitting on a PowerPoint slide. I do want to emphasize that, you know, if you've got a document, it may be that at some point in the presentation, then you, you switch your screen from your PowerPoint over to your Elmo or your IPVO, and you show the actual document um, that you have sitting on a table and you take out a highlighter or you underline it, and then you switch back to your presentation. So. When we're, we're looking at visuals, it's not just PowerPoint, but it might be showing on the screen your uh, document projector. It could be using a physical prop. You could have a red flag sitting up. 
there are many, many different kinds of uh, visuals that you could use, and, and it's not just limited to PowerPoint. There's lots of opportunity to, to, to mix it up, and it's really important that you do do that. It's important to, to mix up the media, to, to really take a, a, a approach here where you're wanting to make this interesting and varied and to be switching from the PowerPoint to the IPVO and back to, the, back to a board. You know, you're wanting to connect the story with the visuals, but have a lot of visual variety in the way you present your ideas. Let's talk a little bit about the first three minutes of an opening statement, because I know you do a lot of work in that area, and that would help us also, I think, understand um, a lot of the larger issues that, that we're talking about. So I think a great way to to um, explore this, I just got a subscription to the Courtroom View Network that uh, does recordings of opening statements or trials. And that's a great resource if you if you don't have a subscription there. I'm not you know I'm not selling it. I don't have any stake in the, in that. But I just think it's great to be able to go in and watch people give opening statements and closings and watch what they do in between. And so I, I think that actually is a, a really interesting thing to do. If you just you know from my perspective, I, I you know my my interest is in just looking at the first three minutes of opening statements and just seeing what what people are saying. And, and it's so interesting because I think that, you know, we can generally agree with what psychologists and learning experts, um, you know, people in film and television, there's, oh, there's actually a great um, interview. If you've got that masterclass account, you know, if you, if you have heard of masterclass, it's a, uh, a learning platform where different people, experts teach various topics. And one of the, one of the classes is by Ken Burns the guy who's the big documentary maker and and he has one of his classes about the very first things you say when you open up a story. And, and I think across all of those different, you know, types of uh, learnings and understandings about the beginnings of stories, there's a general agreement that at the very beginning, you've got to get a lot done. You've got to make an impact you know, most often by having a hook at the beginning, something that's intriguing and interesting. Just just think of the beginning of just about every television show where you start watching it and something interesting is happening that you might not understand completely, everybody who's there, what's happening, but it's something really interesting and intriguing that's grabbing you in. So there's a general agree- agreement, I think, is that, you know, with an audience... Uh, especially on television, you know, in streaming services, there's so much opportunity to go do somewhere else, to click somewhere else. So there's got to be some, you've got to grab people's attention and hook them and pull them in. So I think that that's a general principle to have a hook, to draw them in. And that also at this very beginning point, so it is so important in the first three minutes to be able to capture your audience's attention to hook them in and to draw their interest forward at, to help them feel an emotion about what you're talking about, to lay out a framework where you're going to take them, to make them feel relaxed, to make them feel engaged, to make them feel like they care about what's happening. It's so important, especially these days with so much media out there People could quickly 
you know, start watching something, they're not interested and they move on to something else. So some underlying principles that folks who study this, you know, generally apply is that you've got to, to hook somebody, you've got to grab their attention and to make them care about what you're talking about, to relate it to something they're interested in. So I think across many, many different professions, uh, folks who study this, this would be educational psychologists, this would be people who study the psychology of persuasion and influence, um, that the general principles are, are about that, about, you know, the first thing you say is going to be super important, you know, the primacy principle, what you say first is important, but also, especially these days, the need to be able to hook people into the content that you're talking about to make them feel like they're engaged and interested and to draw their attention and have them lean forward. So, so doing that would be all these elements, you know, you've got to, to, to frame what you're talking about, to tell a story, make it interesting, and that you really do have this narrow window of opportunity because people will zone out very quickly. So, so, so important, you know, this, you could write an entire book just about the first three minutes, but I would say that, you know, it's just super important that the first things you say have the greatest impact. And, and it's really important because I think that often, you know, especially in, in many of the openings I've watched or been, uh, been a party to is that very often, you know, uh, the very first things could be full of fluff and, you know, something that's not really important, um, where, you know, the opportunity really is to, 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 to do the hook, to grab somebody's attention. And that's why I would say, you know, so we've talked about story a lot and that's a, the theme of what we're talking about and about your podcast, but that's actually a wonderful way to begin an opening is actually just jump right in to a story. You know, you could do that by just saying, you know, August 15th, 2019. John was headed in his car to go see blah, blah, blah. You know, so that with that painting of the story and just saying the date, somebody's going somewhere and then boom, something happened. How did that happen? Well, let's back up and we'll tell the story. So that's a, a concept or the idea of front loading that you you very quickly get to the emotional heart of it. And this is the you know technique in television shows where you turn on the TV and something at the beginning of the episode, something is happening, something very dramatic. You don't know who everybody is, but then the show is going to back up and unpack that for you and guide you through the process. So what you say at the very beginning is the most crucial uh, and important things that you're going to say, because that's really working with this very small window of opportunity to grab the attention and to, of your jurors, your audience, and to make them care about this. So they're going to, they're going to hang on with you through the rest of the story. Wow. Well, Cliff, this is amazing. Your, your insight is really, you know, fantastic. And I firmly believe that Every trial lawyer should have your book beyond bullet points on their desk. Um, in a way, you know, PowerPoint is like simply an outlining program. And it's sort of a blank slate on which a lot of lawyers, myself included, uh, in the past have just sort of used as a crutch to sort of make a list. And what I think is so powerful about your book is not only do you um, really have a step-by-step -step guide of how to approach story, develop story, 
uh, tell story, show story. It, it's really um, just a tremendous resource that trial lawyers should look at every case through. Um, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. And I'm looking forward to learning from you uh, more. And I hope one day you'll come back and, and uh, hopefully soon share with us some more of your insight. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, yeah, I feel that we're just you know opening the first chapter of a book about stories. So definitely, I would uh, I would love to to come back and chat with you more about a lot of this stuff. But thank you so much for for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please subscribe. And I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a good review. We want to spread the word so other people can learn the way I do every week and grow as a lawyer and as a person from the tremendous skills of our guests. Also, I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. You can reach me at my website, www.scottglovsky.com. You can email me at sglovsky at scottglovskylaw.com, or you can pick up the phone the old-fashioned way and call me at 626-243-5598. Thanks so much for listening. Look forward to talking with you soon.